Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. So grateful that you've joined us for this really critically important conversation, for this amazing and opportunity that we all have to come together to learn and to support and to be educated and informed and to be inspired. I can't express strongly enough my gratitude to the Foreman family for their courage and willing to share with us and appear tonight and open up their hearts and open up their experiences and make themselves vulnerable and transparent. And a willingness to share and to share in a public setting is really something was extraordinary. And they're doing so for one reason. They're doing so, certainly this is an attention that they're seeking or looking to celebrate or highlight. They're doing so in order to inspire us to educate us, for we, all of us, to be positioned to be more knowledgeable, more sensitive, more aware, more supportive, and to be so much better. We're reading the parashios of Avram Avinu. We lose him in this parasha in Chaye Sarah. But when we are introduced to him, Hashem makes him several promises, which include and culminate with Veheye Bracha. And there are many interpretations. What does it mean for Avram to receive blessing? It can't be, because it says Vavarechacha. It already says Avram, Hashem promised Avram he's going to be blessed. So what does Veheyei Bracha mean? And the first says something phenomenal. This part is not a promise of a blessing. It is a charge and a mandate. Avram, Heyei Bracha. Take your life experiences. Take all that you go through and have gone through. Allow your journey to position you and enable you. Share it in a way that you will be a blessing in other people's lives. And that's what we have tonight. The Foreman family who've agreed and really dedicate their lives now in many ways to share in a way that takes a lot of courage. But they are, you are a bracha. You're a bracha to the Jewish community and the Jewish people. You're a bracha to our community in your uh, being here with us this evening and sharing with us this evening and enabling us to learn from you and through you. And for that, we are beyond, beyond grateful and could never express adequately our appreciation. So please join me in thanking you for going to introduce a little bit. They'll really introduce themselves in much more justice. Um, and then we'll, we'll get into the story. And I'll present a lot of questions I know we have. We'll see if we have time for questions from the audience as well. The Foremans have been living in Teaneck, New Jersey, my hometown, for 25 years. And uh, Leanne ETL have five children, four grandchildren, um, active and, and successful careers, have been involved in leadership and participation in the greater Teaneck community and its many institutions and organizations, and really in many ways are, are I wouldn't say typical because it's insulting, I think an exceptional family in our Torah community in every which way. Alana was going to share tonight her experiences, and I want to give a spoiler alert and fast-forwarding her experiences to where she is today. First of all, to wish her, I heard a little birdie told me got a birthday coming up, to wish her a very happy birthday. <laughs> This is uh, one way to celebrate a birthday, <laughs> a community you've never met before, <laughs> sharing uh, everything in your life. But uh, lives in Philadelphia today, is uh, completing getting her master's at the University of Pennsylvania, which is tremendous. We should a lot of continued atzlach and success in that. And Gavriel, maybe some of you recognize because he is a member of the brand new colo of the Yeshiva of South Florida, a resident here of Boca Raton, a neighbor, a member of our community, and super excited to be one of the leaders within our new, with our new yeshiva. So again, we're so grateful, Alana, we're gonna turn right to you to open up 
And, you know, again, I'm sure it could take all night and many nights to share really the depth of your experience and, and how we got here. But set the stage. Give us a little background. Please tell us. And the last thing I'll say in introduction, maybe the most important, is as much as the foremans have separately and in different venues and in many occasions shared this story, they've never sat on a panel together. Alana with her parents and her brother, they've never had this experience sharing in this way concurrently at the same time on one panel it just makes this opportunity this evening all the more special for us and for which we are so much more grateful so Ilana please hi everyone um so I'm Ilana or Ellie Foreman um the daughter of these two lovely people and the sister of Gabrielle Foreman um, not a lovely person yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know and um I mean I'm a lot of things like what's that I'm a grad student I also waitress part-time, um, a lot of different roles in my life, but most importantly for this conversation, I'm also an addict in recovery. Um, and like what's said, I'm just gonna share kind of like the highlight, quick version of my story. Um, but if anyone has any follow-up questions afterwards or wants to talk to me or has any, I'm totally an open book and very open and willing to share my story. Um, so yeah, so my story with addiction started a little bit before high school, actually like probably the night before high school was the first time that I touched a substance. Um, my parents were out. And I was really nervous about starting high school. Um, I remember feeling just all these fears and insecurities that were very normal for high school girls, but I didn't really know how to cope with them or how to deal with them. And I also didn't really know that much about alcohol, besides the fact that I had seen adults in my life drink it to celebrate things. Um, I had seen it in movies be used when someone was really afraid of something, they would drink some alcohol and all of a sudden all their fears would melt away. So that was kind of like the conception I had of alcohol was that it was this thing that would make things happier, or brighter, or better in my life. Um, that was just kind of like what I went into was. So while my parents were out, I went down to their liquor cabinet. They know this already. I'm not like telling myself. <laughs> um, I went down to their liquor cabinet and I just, whatever I could find, I just mixed it all into a cup. I didn't really know that you weren't supposed to mix like light and dark alcohols. I didn't know any of this stuff. So I just mixed whatever I could find. Um, I drank it and I ended up getting very sick that night. I ended up with alcohol poisoning. Um, but before everything kind of blurred out and that night became sort of like a, a blurry, you know, uh, forgotten memory. Uh, I remember literally, and again, I was by myself. I was alone. I literally walked over to my bathroom mirror and looked in the mirror and said out loud to myself, this is it. This is the thing that's going to make me feel better. Um, and it wasn't like in some ways something that unlocked something for me and got me outside of myself enough that I didn't have to deal with all those underlying fears and insecurities. But I also say like in many more ways, obviously it created much more problems um, than it ever solved for me. Fast forward through high school and I continued using um, periodically. It was never something that I thought was a problem. And also I think my parents like had some idea that, that some stuff was going on. I don't think they knew the extent of all the experimentation that was going on. Um, it was mostly smoking weed, drinking. Um, and it was also, it was, it was like infrequently. It was, I would be at my friend's house on Shabbos. Their older siblings would have something. They would offer some, I would say yes. Um, and it felt very like harmless and you know, and even like at that age too, right? I went to high, I was in high school. I went to Maya Nova for high school. Uh, I remember they had someone come in and talk to us about addiction. And I remember sitting in the audience and just being like, okay, like that's great for this woman, whoever she is, that she had this story with addiction and recovery, but this is not something that, you know, is relevant to me. Um, this is not something that affects like people like me who are good students, you know, good families. Like this is not relevant. Like my idea of who was like, could be an addict was someone that was literally like homeless under a bridge. I didn't think it really affected like communities like ours, even as like my addiction was starting, I, it felt like a very far away concept. Um, you know, fast forward some more and I got to college and a lot of freedom was offered to me in college. 
I moved out of uh, my parents' house for the first time. Um, and just with like, you know, more freedom came more responsibilities and also more, more opportunities and more consequences. Um, on a college campus, there was other substances that were offered to me. I moved on from weed and alcohol into pills um, and harder substances. Um, and my use sort of continued at first in a way that didn't feel super problematic. Um, and a lot of it also was to like kind of motivated by my desire to be better, not by my desire to be high or to, you know, it was, I want to get outside myself so I could better show up for my life. I want to take um, this, this Adderall or whatever it was so I could stay up all night and get my papers done um, and, you know, make my parents proud of me and be a good student. Like it was very much motivated by this drive to be a better version of myself. Um, but at some point, obviously, it started making me a much worse version of myself. Uh, throughout college, as my use progressed, um, I had like a lot of friends I started college with. Slowly but surely, like I lost a lot of those friendships. My friends didn't want to hang out with me because most of what I was interested in doing involved drugs or alcohol, and they weren't interested in those things. Um, so I, I found other friends that were interested in those things. Um, and, you know, and, and also, you know, like a lot of my drug use at the beginning was like motivated by this desire to be better. But then halfway through college, I ended up failing out and dropping out and having to go on medical leave um, because the drugs and the alcohol got in the way. Um, once it got to that point, also, like I tried to quit a couple of times on my own. I remember uh, there was a, a few times I would throw out everything I had in my cabinet, like I would dump all my alcohol in the toilet, flush it. And I would make this promise to myself, like, OK, I'm going to be clean and sober for 30 days. I'm going to get rid of everything. And then in 30 days, I'll reevaluate and see where I am. But for now, I'm just going to you know, go 30 days and do like a cleanse. And every time that I would try that, it would be maybe two or three days later, I would find myself um, drinking again or getting high again. Um, and it was at that point that I realized this is something that was kind of beyond me. Like it had sort of gotten to the point where it was no, it was no, it, not sort of, it did get to the point where it no longer felt like it was in my control. Um, and it felt almost like, I always talk about it. It was like this battle between like my brain and myself, right? Because at this point, like I badly like wanted to be clean and sober already, but my brain almost like kept propelling me back towards it. Um, and it very much, you know, and then when later when I found out about the disease of addiction and how it really does hijack our brain's reward circuits, um, I had the scientific understanding to explain and put it to words what was going on during that time. Um, eventually things got pretty bad. There was like a series of consequences, both failing out of school, losing friendships, um, and also just like a lot of like, very scary, bad times that happened to me during college. Um, and I got to, it was my 22nd birthday. Um, and I traveled home to Tina from Queens um, to go uh, have like a birthday dinner with my parents. Um, and I, I, I don't, they, they claim I told them about the drug use at this point. I don't really remember if it was at that point or if they just knew something was up, like I seemed off. Um, anyways, like a few days after that, a little bit after that, um, I remember just kind of having this moment where I was on my way to class um, and I was taking the subway from wherever I was coming from. And I like stood there on the edge of the subway and I literally had this moment where I'm like, I'm either going to get help or like I can't do this anymore. Like it felt very much like and not I wasn't going to jump off the subway platform, but the thought crossed my mind standing on the side of the subway. It was like, I'm either going to get help and get out of this cycle or like that's my other alternative because that was where where I was emotionally, physically, mentally, um, and I was drained and I was exhausted. So I impulsively like text them after the fact and basically said, just while the thought was still fresh in my mind, I impulsively said like, I'm struggling with drugs, I need help. Um, from there, it was like probably about another half a month to a month before I actually um, ended up going to treatment. Um, I flew down to Florida 
to your lovely state. Um, <laughs> and I uh, went to a treatment center at Port St. Lucie. And this was uh, about, this was six years ago. Um, and I now have like five years in recovery. So you can kind of do the math that I didn't get it right away. Um, it took a couple of tries in and out of treatment. Um, but eventually, you know, I just started taking suggestions, what people were telling me to do and sort of like just shut off my, I'm a person that overthinks a lot. And I like to justify everything that I do and think through decisions um, and then question those decisions afterwards. Um, but at some point I realized like if I was going to get this recovery thing, I was just going to have to shut off my brain and listen to what other people that had more experience with recovery and more experience with the disease of addiction, um, what they were telling me to do and just follow their direction. So, you know, they told me to go to detox. I went to detox. They told me to go to a 30 day rehab. I went to a 30 day rehab. They told me to move into a halfway house with other sober women. I moved into a halfway house with other sober women. Um, and, you know, I, I went to AA groups and NA groups, which are 12 step groups. Um, I did like a lot of different things for my recovery. Uh, you know, my recovery has like morphed and changed over the years too. It hasn't been static. It's kind of what I do for my recovery has been like a dynamic process and figuring that out as I go along too. Um, obviously my parents were like a huge part of my recovery process. They were the ones that helped me get down to treatment and they have been like just super supportive, not just with like starting a whole nonprofit for me, but like even besides <laughs> that, um, they've just been like very supportive, outspoken uh, about, you know, opening up these conversations. Um, a few years later, when they came to me with the idea for CCSA, I remember they asked me if I would be okay with telling my story publicly as part of the work that they wanted to do in Jewish communities. Um, and I told them for sure, but this is my condition. I need my contact information to be in whatever news article you're putting out, whatever awareness event you're doing. So that if somebody else is struggling, they have my number and they can reach out. And that was my condition. Um, and, and they followed it. And, you know, and then since then, it's only grown the prevention work we do. And I'll let them talk more about that. But I just want to say one cool thing. When I was flying down here six years later, after the first time I flew down to Florida, um, I was reflecting on it that I was flying to the Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale Airport, which is the same airport that I flew down to to come to treatment. Um, but instead of flying down and coming to treatment, I was literally working on my master's thesis, which is on addiction research um, and prevention. So it was just a very cool, like, I don't know, like full circle kind of moment where I'm like, oh, wow, that's really amazing that that's where I am today. And a lot of it is due to them. Um, and, you know, a lot of other people that have supported me and helped me along the way. So that's my story. So. <laughs> Before, before we turn to your family, to your different angles, perspectives, and to continue to unpack the story and then learn from it, I just want to follow up. So you mentioned that the timeline of when you first started in, in recovery doesn't match up with how long you've been in recovery in terms of it taking a little time. So for those listening, some struggling themselves, some having family members that they love who are struggling, what, what clicked? What do you think changed? You said you stopped overthinking, you just started listening. But, you know, a lot of people who even go through a recovery program, aside from the recidivacy rate and going back to it and returning to it, just people thinking that now they're good or they're fixed or they're on their own or that they don't need it or they don't they don't really want to give it up. What do you think for you really changed or clicked that can both give people here hope if they have a family member going through it or for themselves, something might click for them to finally be able to confront what they need to work on? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. And I think it was a combination of things. Um, I mean, not not to be morbid, some of it was there was people I was in treatment with and one girl who I was particularly close with who we left treatment together at one point. Um, our lives sort of separated. I didn't hear from her for a while. And then a couple months later, I found out she had overdosed and died um, to this disease. Um, and I talk I talk a lot about it, not so much when I come into schools, but 
with older crowds. Like there was a lot of people in and out of treatment with me who were my age, who were people I was, you know, seeing, giving hugs to. Um, and then I would find out a couple months later that, that they had passed away to this disease. Um, so I think that was part of the, the motivation of what drove me to just turn my brain off. Um, I had this reflection moment where I was like, I don't want to be another statistic. I don't want to be in an obituary. Like I have things that I wanted to do with my life at one point. I don't know where at that point, I didn't know where I wanted my life to go or what my next goals were, but I knew it wasn't that. And I knew that there was things I still want to experience. Um, I also frequently tell my parents too, when I was in the throes of everything, I didn't think I was going to make it past age 25. Like that was kind of the cutoff I had given myself where it's like, I didn't imagine life beyond that. Um, and on my 25th birthday, I actually sent them like a whole bouquet of flowers, thanking them for uh, helping me get to 25. Um, but aside from that, aside from the external things, there was also sort of uh, the internal, um, I think like the support I was getting was also helpful for that. If people are thinking about family members, like knowing that that support was still there, even after I had messed up a few times and even after I had relapsed and tried again and again, that support was still there. That like unconditional love was still there. Um, and then also I don't know, just the, the internal something. Click. And it, I think it, it, I have friends who have also been in and out of treatment and then something finally clicks. I think for everyone, it's a different combination of things. So I don't want to speak like a blanket statement. Um, for me, it was just that combination of things. So, thank you. All right, let's turn to your amazing parents. I know of a lot to share and offer. So please. Um, well, first of all, she stole my thunder because I was going to tell the 25th birthday story. <laughs> um, I, I think what Ilana touched on, and it's something that may not come naturally or innately, um, for whatever reason, it was okay for us to love her unconditionally. Meaning. There are lots of times you may not like your kids, you may not like the things that they do. You don't necessarily have to love your kids all the time, but, and I do love you, don't worry, I do. Um, and I love you too. Thank you. <laughs> and I love your siblings. Um, but I think that we made it our business to stand by her and made it, and made it clear to her that we were gonna stand by her healthy decisions, that we supported her um, and that, like she said, no matter how many times things didn't work out, um, you have to love your child unconditionally in that way. Um, that doesn't mean you have to be a doormat and it doesn't mean that there weren't things that I said to create boundaries or to create my own space for my own mental health and my sanity. Um, but I think that we looked at our relationship and said, you know, we just have to stand by her no matter what. And we, we want her alive. That really was what it came down to. One of the things that, that you, you're taught um, as a family member of someone suffering from addiction uh, is that your journey is separate from the journey of your loved one. And so while we were watching Ilana go through, you know, ride the roller coaster, these ups and downs, um, you know, we, we were told, look, you don't want to ride the roller coaster with her. And that's that's kind of the parental instinct is to be there for your child, to try and solve your child's problems. Um, you know, we've all had those feelings. And so for us to learn how to, what's called stay on the beach, you know, watch what she's going through, um, detach with love. All these are terms that you hear, uh, particularly in a lot of the 12 step programs, understand that, you know, we didn't cause this addiction. We can't cure it. We can't control it. Um, it's, this is Ilana's journey, but then to still be there and say, we love you. We want to support your healthy decisions. We are here for you. Um, and there were times you tested that. There were times that, uh, um, you know, that Ilana would push back and say, you know, well, you don't want any part of me. 
you know, you, you don't want to be, you know, in my life, look how bad I am. Um, and it, 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 you know, learning how to say, no, you're not bad. You've made some bad decisions, um, but we're here for you. That was a real challenge. And, and it got, there were times in, in this journey where literally I would script phone calls that I was going to have with Elon. I knew she was going to call and I knew she was in crisis. And I'd be, okay, what do I have to say? What can I say that isn't going to set her off? What can I say that's going to help her get to the right decision? Um, and, and it was great. I put all this tremendous pressure on myself until I finally realized nothing I say in this phone call is going to determine whether she relapses or not. Um, and I think I've learned that lesson. At least I'm saying it. Back then, I didn't. I I, I couldn't even get close <laughs> to that. Um, and, and you know, to be able to get to that point, you know, it's almost like as loved ones, as parents, we're going through our own journey and our own recovery. And that's again, that's a twelve-step concept. Where, you know, the, the loved ones are going through their own journey here. Um, we had a lot to learn. So I, I'm delighted to hear you say we were so supportive and helpful. It in retrospect, yeah, right. <laughs> it, it didn't feel that way in the moment. So how, how do you? I think a question probably on all of our minds. You referenced several times supporting the healthy decisions. How did you decide or distinguish? How are you objective in deciding? Because it's your child, so you don't want to reject any decision or necessarily label it unhealthy. So first of all, how did you have the wherewithal to know what was healthy and unhealthy? And those boundary setting, which probably to Alana, if we don't talk about you, you're sitting right here, you could answer, but probably didn't feel like healthy boundary setting or, or unconditional love or, or tough love. How did you know as parents, when do you practice tough love? When do you stop enabling or cut off or create boundaries or, or give consequences? And when do you say we love you unconditionally and we're here with you and we're not going anywhere and we'll be there all along? And how did you navigate running that risk that if you do that, maybe that'll be it. You'll be on the out. You know, the, the best analogy we got from a, a, an addiction psychiatrist who told us once, you have to think about what your loved one's going through as a garden. There are beautiful flowers in there. And then there are a lot of weeds. And sometimes the weeds grow and they overtake the flowers. Um, the idea is not to just throw the garden away. The idea is to figure out where the weeds are and help pick those weeds out to get the garden back to where it needs to be. How to determine what's the weed and what's the flower? Um, weed is probably the wrong term to use. Right? <laughs> um, uh, it, it is, um, you know, that, that's something that you just, you know, we, we, Leanne and I are both very, we're very kind of driven, results-oriented people. We learned a ton about um, addiction, about substances. We were voracious consumers of, of just information. We spoke to anyone who would speak to us. I mean, at the beginning, we didn't know who to speak to because, again, in our community, this is such a stigmatized issue, different conversation. But um, it, it, it just it was just a lot of long hours of talking to people and learning um, what it means, what the boundary between being supportive and enabling is. Um, you know, we, we see this in our support group now. Parents have these horrible decisions to make whether they're going to ask their loved one to not live in the house anymore. Um, how do you reach that decision? And there were times when we had to think about that and we weren't always on the same page. Right. Um, there were times when I was ready to say, you know, if she's gonna make this decision, I don't want her living with us. And, and you know, Leanne is the mother, a much more compassionate parent, would say, no, I could never throw my child out. So the, these are, again, these are fluid dynamic issues. They're not easy, but, um, you just learn everything you can and you do the best you can. Could you both address that for a moment? Is how do you navigate those differences? Because not only not only do you have such concern for your daughter and her future and her present, but you're trying to navigate not letting this divide you or break your family, um, this disease, the illness, and, and how it's manifesting itself. So when you had different opinions or approaches or different conclusions, how do you navigate the stress it puts on you as a couple and your marriage? And I, 
I was okay to ask these questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I actually told them before we came, you might hear some things tonight that you've never heard before. So um, yeah, no, we didn't, you know, we're okay. We're good. Um, I think the biggest one was when Ilana first came to us and said she was struggling. And again, that innate need to fix it and to do something about it. And we had to step back and learn very quickly. This is not something we can control and we can't get her to get help. Um, and so we were trying to gameplay. What what happens if this? What happens if that? It was November, December time. Um, she was at that point recanting and saying, I don't need your help. I'm fine. I can handle this on my own. I'm not going to do anything about it. And we decided, you know what? We can't give her tuition money anymore. We can't give her rent money anymore because the money for tuition is, is going to waste and the money for rent is probably going for drugs. So that we were on the same page. We decided that was enabling. Um, we sat down with Ilana. We told her this is the situation. And, you know, come January 1st, when your lease is up, she was in Macaulay, Queens. Um, when your lease is up, you can't pay tuition on your own and you can't pay for your rent. You know, you need to get help. This is what we want you to do. And she was at that point saying no. And then we started talking and he wanted to change the locks on the door. And I did not want, I kept on saying to Ilana, we don't want your addiction in our house. We don't, we love her, but we didn't want her addiction in our house. We had three younger kids at home, one of them here. <laughs> um, and I felt at that point I was making a decision between balancing the needs of my three younger children and Ilana. And I started imagining her living in the streets and I started imagining her being homeless and I started imagining all sorts of horrible things. And I think that was our biggest fight because I said, I, I can't do it. I can't change the locks. I know I have to protect my other children um, but I didn't know what to do. And thank God, this one decided to make the decision for us and literally called us. We sent her to a practice that specializes in placing people in, in rehab and, and in treatment on a Friday. Um, that Motzei Shabbos, we got a call from the tarmac in the airport saying, I'm on the plane and I'm going to Florida and I'm going to get help. So I don't know what we would have done. Um, it was it was a, it was really a low point in our marriage. It was a low point for us um, as a couple and as parents. And it was an impossible situation that I don't know how it would. I, every time I tell this story, I say, you know, thank God Ilana made the decision for us because I don't know what it would have been. Yeah, and I, I think what we what we've learned is because we've seen this, and and this disease will either break a marriage mm -hmm. apart or make it much stronger. Um, and I think we were lucky in our case, it really brought us together in many ways. Um, we learned through that experience, we had to really communicate and, and hash these things out in a productive way and do everything we could to be on the same page. Um, and that's really how we've guided ourselves, you know, since that point. Are there any specific tools that you used or anything that you would recommend couples who are facing something as significant as this, or even not aligned in how to raise their children in much more benign ways, yeah. but anything you can suggest about how you were able to have those conversations in a productive way. So I'm a huge fan of peer-to-peer -peer support. I think it's an underutilized uh, tool. Um, what it takes is being open about your struggles with other people who you may or may not know. And so um, once we started this, this support group in 2018, um, there were a lot of people who had a lot of these discussions. And then immediately when, when a family's in crisis, a couple is in crisis and they're not on the same page, there are four or five other couples on in that meeting, well, in Zoom over, over COVID or there personally, um, who said, yeah, we went through that. Let us take you through how we thought about that. So I think peer-to-peer -peer support is a really valuable tool and it's not limited to addiction. There are 
you know, there are, are peer-to-peer support groups for families of people, you know, struggling with mental health, for families um, who have kids who are, I hate this term, but off the dara. I mean, there, there's peer-to-peer support for all of this stuff. Um, and I think, so that's, that's for me, one of the most underutilized uh, tools out there. So, I mean, we didn't have that at the time. We only had each other. Um, you know, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a very, we're both lawyers, just to give you an idea. Like, we're both very solution-oriented and we're both very analytical. Um, I had a need to talk incessantly about this and he had a need to not hear me talk incessantly about this. <laughs> so it was very hard to balance those needs. Um, and there were many, many times that we felt, you know, everything that we had, we were giving to Ilana and whatever was left over in the tank was for other kids. And thank God our oldest was in Israel at the time, because I don't know that I could have handled four kids <laughs> at three. Um, and then there was nothing left in the tank for each other. And there was definitely not, not, nothing in the tank for us individually. Um, so at that point, when you have nothing left, you're expecting the other person to make you feel better and to help you. And the other person's expecting you to make things right. And, you know, it just, I mean, it did in the end make us stronger, thank God. Um, but it is very, very hard when you feel like your partner should be the one carrying you because you can't carry yourself and you're both feeling that at the same time. And I think one couple who was going through something different, they had a daughter with a very serious eating disorder, told us, advised us when um, we spoke to them that they took turns being the strong one, that they took turns, you know, helping the other person and saying, okay, now it's my turn, now it's my turn. I um, mean, I think we tried that and I think we were okay with that for a while. Um, yeah, I still like him. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good thing. We're, we're gonna come back to this, but yeah. the part that you both left out is that you were trying to navigate that, keep it together, exhausted, put all your energy into Alana, into your other children, had nothing left for yourselves, all while the people around you didn't know what you were going through. Correct. All while by living this facade that everything's okay, everything's normal, Alana's off somewhere, which you have to make up a different reason every time. And yeah. that's another layer that compounds the exhaustion physically and mentally and emotionally of doing all that. But I want to turn to one of those kids we keep referencing <laughs> in the house that we were protecting from that addiction. That's Gabriel. Gabriel, thank you for also sitting on this panel. Not necessarily easy, a community you just moved to and you just joined. <laughs> and it's some introduction, but it only makes us admire <laughs> you and your family more, certainly not less. So Gabriel, give us your perspective. Now, how old were you? How much did you know? Did you see Alana acting differently or something's up? Were you suspicious? Did you want to say something? Were you concerned? Do you keep it to yourself because uh, you know you don't you don't rat out a sister? And how did it impact you that your parents were giving so much time, so much energy, and so much resources to only one of their children? Was it at the expense of their others? How did you navigate this? This was totally not on purpose, but the fact that I'm sitting on this side of the table and was asked the question last out of the four of us is like a very good illustration of what it's like to be a sibling of someone with addiction. Um, you know, first of all, I also want to thank BRS for sponsoring this free family therapy session for us. Um, like Rabbi Goldberg said in the beginning, um, you know, this is the first time that we're really hashing this out all together. Um, so full disclaimer, nothing I say here is current uh, uh, feelings and but um, but the job of a sibling of someone going through addiction is to be neglected. Um, I'm not saying this for pity. I'm not saying this for you know people to look at me right now, the sad faces that I'm getting. I'm saying this because <laughs> if there's any siblings out there, um, I want them to, to understand. Um, but um, yeah, to go um, to go years 
I would say, years of being. I also I, I have two younger sisters um, who my parents, I think, were pretty successful at sheltering from everything that was going on or more successful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was already in high school, so I was old enough to kind of understand what was going on. Um, and when your parents have to fly to with your sister to uh, a rehab out of state and to help her get settled or to, you know, be making late night calls and trying to take care of things. Um, and I was left as the, the babysitter. And I remember times when I was living in um, living in a neighbor's basement um, for a week or two at a time. And we would my sisters would be staying somewhere else. We would wake up early enough that we could all meet at home, pack lunches, and then get on the bus and go to school. And my parents were just not home. Um, so, you know, it takes a toll on you as 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 a sibling. And and you're not the one who's getting the the attention, and you're not the one who has the disease. You're just the one who's kind of um, cleaning up a little bit of the mess afterwards and and trying to just keep a smile on your face and not bother your parents with with questions. Um, so I, I, you know, I did know what was going on to, to some extent. Uh, there was a lot that I didn't know what was going on and still probably don't know what went on. Um, I <laughs> um, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's the role of a sibling, I think. And you found yourself having to care for other siblings. In other words, you were both not getting attention and forced to grow up faster than you otherwise should have had to. Yeah, that's, that's the, the phrase that always resonated with me was that I became an adult a little bit too quickly. Um, which serves me very well in a lot of ways. And, you know, Baruch Hashem, our family is, um, I'm much closer to my two younger sisters than I am to my older brother. Um, and our family is really closer than ever before. So really, in a way, it brought us all together. And it's, we're not gonna, we're gonna start with you first now on this, <laughs> uh, on the pivot, sort of the next part, but you know, what do you do when you're living in a neighbor's basement, but you don't necessarily want people to know when your sister is somewhere and people ask, hey, what's your sister up to? when you're trying to keep it all together, but are you keeping it a secret? You know, what we want to talk about next is really the stigma around this and, and you suffer sort of in silence and in shame. And that only compounds, doesn't make it easier or better. It's not supportive. It only does the opposite. And thank God that's beginning to change. And you'll speak much more about it than I ever could about, thank God, improvements like nights like tonight because of really courageous heroes like you, your family, enabling us to have this conversation tonight. But rewinding the clock of going back how did you deal with that was it were there like family huddles that said make sure you don't say anything don't let anyone know here's how we're keeping it a secret was everyone had their own game plan to figure out how to navigate it did you were you transparent when people asked did you say where alana was how did you how did you navigate that so i think in the beginning i was i was hiding it um there's no real easy way to like walk into school and tell your friends that like you know this is what's going on at home my parents just aren't home and my sister is you know in rehab like um and at a certain point probably just because it, you can't hold it in for so long um i had a little bit of a paradigm shift um and i decided that's not, i don't remember i don't have like a turning point memory where this is when i decided what to do but i decided at some point i'm just gonna be open um i'm just gonna tell people and i remember we um there's one shabbos that we were all davening in shul together me my parents and Danny, my younger mm -hmm. sister um and the rub of the shul came over to my parents afterwards, after davening, and was just asking what's going on in life, where are your kids, whatever. And they asked about Ilana. And my mom came up with some answer, you know, oh, Ilana, she's, yeah, she's living in Florida. She's, you know, figuring herself out. Um, and he just assumed that everything was fine. And, you know, Ilana's just, she happens to live in 
you know, Boca Raton, whatever it is. Um, and um, we, we left shul and we were walking home. And um, my mom turned to me and said, you know, like she was very uh, flustered, I guess is the word. Is that, yeah? Yeah, that's a good one. Flustered good by the fact <laughs> that um, she had to hide, you know, this and, and that she had to keep coming up with answers and that people just assumed everything was okay when nothing was okay. And she asked me, she said, what do you, what do you tell your friends um, when they ask about Ilana? And I said, I tell them she's in rehab. <laughs> and my mom said, but, but Gabi, she's, she's not in rehab, she's in a sober living home. And I said, okay, so I'll tell them she's in a sober living home. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, for them, for my parents, it was a, a turning point also in terms of, of being transparent. And we'll make our way down. But Alana, tell us, probably when you were in the throes of this, maybe the stigma or impression wasn't as important to you. But now here you are in front of a room full of people and others who will watch and learn from it later and very public about it. How do you overcome any sense of your own wanting to hide or shame or not share and not this, have this define you? Why are you willing to help break the stigma by being so public? Where does that where does that courage come from? Yeah, Um well, first of all, I mean, part of it is uh, when when you get clean and sober, right? There's this uh, in a 12 step program, there's a process called making amends where it's not necessarily that you apologize, because I said sorry a million times when I was in the throes of addiction. I said sorry for this, sorry for that, but I never truly meant it. So the process of making amends is changed behavior um, and being willing to do things to compensate for those past mistakes because you can't rewind the clock and make up for every mistake you made or every way that you've hurt your family. But when you get clean and sober and it becomes apparent and you start talking about these things and you realize um, the ways you unintentionally or sometimes intentionally hurt your family, um, there's a process of like making it up to them. So I think um, part of part of my motivation is that this is part of my immense process. This is what my family wants to do with my story, um, partially because I think it's been healing for them to make meaning out of it. Um, and to make everything that we went through, all the different ways each of us was hurt or suffered over the years, um, make it worth something by by putting it out there so that other people can uh, hear our story and either use it um, to help other people or to identify their own struggles in our story. Um, so part of it is that. And then part of it is also just my, my own personal motivation of, you know, I always said, like, whatever shit, first of all, I don't, I got to a point where I, no longer, I mean, I regret things in my past, but I don't feel shame about them um, because I understand, especially now with the research that I literally do in, in grad school around addiction, like I understand the ways that a lot of it um, was also not my fault. And it's not something if I, I didn't intentionally choose to become addicted, like I didn't start using drugs with the intention of becoming addicted and having that full bone disease and having all those consequences happen. Um, and a lot of it was outside of my control at the time. So I, I feel regret, but I don't feel shame. And then even whatever minuscule shame I felt at the beginning or whatever nerves I felt um, or fear, fear of being judged, fear of putting your story out there um, for any of you to do with it what you will or think of me what you will. Um, any of that is mitigated by the fact that um, if it helps even one person, it makes it worth it. And I always say that, like every time I go into a school and I'm terrified of high school girls, but when I go speak to high school girls and I'm so scared of them because I know that they're, and middle school girls are even worse in some ways. Like I know that they'll say what's on their minds or they'll talk about me to their friends afterwards. And I, and there is like a little bit of that nerves around it. It's just natural. Anytime I stand in front of a class, but I always tell myself and I tell my parents, I tell anyone that asks me that if it helps even one person, it makes 
all of those feelings worth it. Like those feelings are kind of irrelevant because first of all, they don't really matter and it's nothing to be ashamed about. Um, and it, it can only uh, put benefit um, into this world. So. It's an amazing story. We did a conversation a couple of years ago with two, two men who were in recovery who had finished a recovery program down here. We're courageously willing to do a record. It was on YouTube. And it was a long time later, somebody said to me that, that that conversation saved their son's life because the video had popped up, whatever YouTube's algorithm made that video pop up and they watched it and they recognized some of that in their own son and he entered recovery and they credit these kinds of conversations. So it's not an exaggeration that your courage and your willingness to share not only can, but likely will impact someone significantly and maybe even save a life. And for that, again, we're so grateful. So you've taken a huge leap right? You know, Gavriel was, was sort of younger and made that decision of a teenager to just be honest and transparent and say where his sister was. For you, maybe it was their reputation, career, community standing. Are there other things at stake that you feel, let's keep this, let's put it under the carpet, let's hide it, let's keep it quiet, it's no one's business as long as we can. What changed and, and what would you do to encourage other people in their thinking on this? So, I mean, I give Gabi a lot of credit because he's Gabrielle, but I call him Gabi. Um, I give him a lot of credit because really that comment was a catalyst for both of us. Um, and, you know, at this point, Ilana was in sober living. She was into her a good solid year into her recovery. Um, and I happened, we happened to be in the kosher Dunkin' Donuts in Teaneck and our rabbi was standing in front of us in line and he knew what was going on with Ilana. And he turned around and kind of quietly said, how's Ilana doing? And we said, you know, good, whatever ETL answered. Um, and I said, you know, Rabbi, we are the only family in Teaneck dealing with this, the only family. And he sort of looked at us and sadly shook his head and said, if you only knew. And I think those two events happening in close proximity to each other made us realize we really have to tell our story. We really have to talk. So the first thing we did was we called Ilana and we said, this is really your story and we're not going to do this without you. Um, she said, you know, again, that condition, put my name in whatever publicity you do. I want to be able to help people. And then we went to each of our kids and we said, you know, are you okay with this? And, and we all know this, there are people that something happens in their life and let's, we'll use a tragic, um, you know, somebody dies by suicide and you don't know anything about this family except the name and that they lost somebody. Right. So they, they're, you know, that's all, you know. So I turned to my kids, I said, you may very well be the sister of the addict or the brother of the addict. We may be the parents of the addict. You know, that's all people are gonna know about us and that's all, that's not their, all there is to our family, obviously, but that's what the public eye will look at. Are you okay with that? And Gabrielle was about 20 at the time. Yeah, this, no, younger. You were younger, it's five. No, yeah, yeah 20. Um, sorry, giving away your age. Um, and, and we said to him, you know, you're, you're going to be looking to date. You're going to be looking at Shaduch and his lovely wife is sitting in the front. <laughs> he didn't throw you under the bus. I did. Um, and you know, we said, are you okay with this? And he said, absolutely. We went to our other kids. My other girls went to Maya note also, you know, they have teachers that Ilana had. Um, we asked all of them and they said, yes. And really we told our story April, 2018 in Teaneck. Um, there were over 700 people in the room and there were another 300 people online and the before, during and after was an outpouring of stories. Me too, me too, me too. Tragic stories, successful recovery stories, people still in the throes of it. And I mean, we have become a repository for, I'll call them secrets. I mean, I, they shouldn't be shameful secrets, but you know, situations that are going on even currently, not just in our support group, 
There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have contacted us, so much so that I left my law career two years ago to dedicate myself to the organization full time because there is such a need for it. So tell them, I, tell them what it is, CCSA. Uh, CCSA stands for Communities Confronting Substance Use and Addiction. Um, we do three main things. We have a support group for family members. Currently, it's actually half spouses and half parents um, of people with a loved one who is struggling with substance use or addiction. We do community awareness events, not dissimilar from something like this, where we, I mean, we've never done this, but <laughs> um, not, you know, where we talk. And the biggest thing that we're doing and why we're down here really this week, we were in Katsushiva um, yesterday, today, we'll be there tomorrow. We've been in other schools, um, or Hatora, Lubavitch Hebrew Academy and Margate. Hopefully we'll be in even more schools in the Florida area, but we've been in over 45 schools around the country doing prevention education, sixth through 12th grade, differentiated programs for each grade. Um, and that is the main part of what we do. And we bring in, Ilana really, to her credit, was our first presenter. Um, we bring in somebody who is in recovery, who can speak to the kids directly, be relatable, tell their story, talk about the science behind addiction, what substances do to the brain and body, what introducing substances as a young age can do to you. Um, and marrying those two things, the science behind the addiction and a personal story has really been a successful recipe for us. We now have a dozen presenters, um, male and female. So we are able to go to schools, go to all boys schools, all girls schools, co-ed schools. Um, but Ilana really blazed that trail and you know made it her business to start the organization with her story. I'm fond of saying you know, there, there are precious few times in life when you can honestly see God pointing you in a direction and saying, this is what you need to do. And that's what this felt like. Um, we were there suffering as a family without anyone to talk to. Um, and then this conversation with our rabbi and, and we're just like, we're in the right place. Our kids are ready. Um, we as a family have the kind of, of reputation and respect in our community that no one's gonna look at it and say, oh, that's not us. I mean, we knew that. Um, and so for us, it really was you know, if God points you in a direction, it's a good idea to take it. And and that's that's kind of really how it's felt. Um, I would say when we started this in, in April 2018, um, what Leanne did mention is we, I expected 50, 75 people to show up, just kind of morbid curiosity. Um, when we realized what a nerve we'd struck, um, we were like, okay, we got to move. We got to get, get this going. Never in a million years did we think that four short years later we'd be where we are. And yet there's still so much work to do. Um, and so, you know, Leanne won the coin toss. She got to leave her job. Um, <laughs> I, I just get to do this and, you know, have fun at night. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a labor of love. So I, I wanted, there's so much more to talk about. But I have to ask a question, Alana, of you, which I didn't clear in advance. So obviously anyone can deflect, uh, which is a rule for any of these questions of this conversation. But as you look back, and we talked about addiction, the science of addiction, you're now positioned to know so much more and understand it so much better. We've been focused on substances, but there are all kinds of addictions, behavioral addictions, from gambling addiction and sex addiction and, and uh, eating addiction. There are all kinds of addictions that are out there. Um, but as you look back at your experience, your journey and your addiction, do you think if something had happened or was different in your childhood, is there something had, and again, this is not about blame, it's about understanding and education for us. If the liquor cabinet wasn't there, because I know there'll be some people who will make that conclusion and then advance the argument, our homes and our shul, everything should be dry. And right or wrong, that, that was not, I'm not weighing in on that debate at this time. But had the liquor cabinet not been there on the eve of starting high school, would it have been something else? Would you have found something else? 
was there were there teacher interactions was there friendship social um friction or challenges that you struggled with whether it's your journey or what you've learned about other people's um are there things that you can share from your experience that we can learn from to change the environment our families the community to help try to avoid this illness taking root in others yeah so i think looking at the alcohol um and i know that's a lot of people's first uh reaction i know when we go into schools we talk about the substances because that's kind of what we've based our programming on i think it is important to talk about substances but when you look at the alcohol the alcohol was a symptom right the alcohol was the thing i turned to because it was there um it my what was going on underneath the surface predated the alcohol um i didn't talk about it. i'm not going to get super into it in this panel because this isn't the topic of this panel but in high school i also struggled with an eating disorder um that started even long before the alcohol use and substance use started um for me when i think of my story like it's all kind of intertwined it was something that was going on underneath um it was emotions that i now uh deal with in like therapy and going to see a psychiatrist and like things that are uh the the I don't want to say the good ways, but the proper ways of dealing with mental health issues. Um, but obviously there was like a lot going on even before the substances and the substances were the bandaid that I put on the issues. Um, when I think about like what could have been different, um, I think part of it's just my personality that I was always a good student. I always excelled at a lot of things. Um, and to admit that I was struggling with something or to admit weakness felt very unnatural for me. Um, I was, you know, I, played sports, I played chess, I did well in school. Like it was not, I didn't want to admit that there was something I couldn't do, which was regulate my emotions and figure out how to live life um, successfully. Like I didn't want to admit that that, you know, out of all things, like what I was struggling with was my own brain, you know? Um, and that felt very unnatural to me. I think today, even looking at like what the students get today around mental health and mental wellness, I think the, the conversations are opening up. Um, I don't know if like we had talked about it more in high school when I was in high school, if it would have changed the trajectory. I don't know if I still would have struggled and still would have gone through what I went through. Um, I don't know if like I had a group of friends that was really worried about me and went to someone earlier, like if that would have changed anything or if or if my parents had, had sat me down and had, you know, one of since, you know, since that time, we've had like a lot of like open heart to heart conversations. When I was younger, we didn't have a lot of those like and it wasn't their fault or my fault or anyone's fault, those things were just not really like openly talked about. And it felt very unnatural to bring up that kind of stuff. Um, you know, like it didn't feel like a shop stable conversation to, to have around like mental health and mental wellness. Um, now it's like every shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you encourage, so is that one of the takeaways? Would you encourage parents not necessarily at the shop stable, yeah. but you know, go into your kid's room and sit and try to without, without prying, but create at least an opening for, is there anything you want to talk about or share? Or how are you doing or how are you feeling? How are you engaging? Is that is that a healthy takeaway? Yeah, I think um, absolutely. Like whether it's parents, um, with your siblings, with your friends, um, teachers in schools, like I think that these conversations, I think they are opening up more. Um, and I definitely see it more with the students, you know, when I go into schools now. Um, but I think that that talking about those things that feel uncomfortable or feel unnatural or feel like they, they don't affect like, communities like ours or like good Jewish families. Like these are not problems like depression, eating disorders, mental health issues. Like these are not problems that like we deal with in our family. I think like sweeping it under the rug um, only amplifies uh, the negative effects of it. Um, and if, it does feel uncomfortable to talk about these things, but something that I've learned also through this work and also just through being like very open about my story is that even people who have never used substances have come to me and said, oh, I've been struggling with anxiety um, I don't know who to who to go to. Like, I know I should probably be on meds or something. Like, I don't know, but I don't know who to go to, you know? Um, and there's a lot of people struggling with all sorts of issues that feel 
embarrassing or shameful to talk about, but it's the same as a physical illness, you know, like it's the same as, as anything else. It's just located in the brain instead of in, in your lung or in your stomach or in your foot, you know? Um, but yeah. So, yeah, I just was going to say one of the things we do in addition to educating students is we have a parent program. Um, there's actually resources in the back that we use in our parent program, how to open up a conversation, how to dialogue with your child. My favorite line is I have five kids. I've had 10 eyes rolled at me many times. Um, they all had their own bedroom. I've had five doors closed on me many times. Um, your kids will walk away from you. They will seem like they're not listening, but um, in retrospect, our youngest is now 18. She's in Israel. Um, even she tells us that she listens to us and she listened to us in high school and they do hear our voices. Um, and people always ask, what's your biggest regret? And I think it was, you know, kind of the one and done, you know, have the conversation before they go to high school. We did send her to therapy after that night of finding her drunk. We did realize what she was coping with was a very normal anxiety about starting high school. Her coping mechanism was not a healthy one, but that didn't alleviate us of the responsibility of going to her. We just felt like we were prying. It's her business. Even with, with Gabrielle, you know, many times I wanted to have conversations with him and he would be in his room with the door closed. And we very much felt like we can't intrude. Um, and now I tell parents intrude, you yeah. know, find opportunities and teachable moments and have those organic conversations. A couple of hints. Car rides are the best time to have conversations. <laughs> They're trapped. They can't go anywhere. Um, you know, car rides before they're going to bed. And yes, we talk a lot in the parent programming about, you know, using open-ended questions, active listening. Don't have your phone out when you talk to your kids. These are all kind of, it's basic blocking and tackling, but very often we forget it. Um, and these are things that we really reinforce in, in our parent program. And I think a lot about in, in my very limited experience, but my eagerness to learn about addiction and recovery, many of the stories, as, as you were saying, Lana, there's, there's a hole in someone's heart over something. And you know, even just being awake is, is, is painful. So one numbs themselves, finds an escape, is trying to deal with it in all different ways. And I just, I feel this awesome responsibility for us collectively as a community to learn how can we fill in that hole without the substance? How can we fill it in with love? And how can we fill it in without judgment? How can we fill it in with acceptance? How can we fill it in with support? What are the ways that we could fill it in? So I don't know if there's suggestions, Gabriel, maybe as you're in a colel and part of community and maybe have a future in this line of work too. If you have thoughts for what could community do better to support someone who's going through addiction, recovering from addiction, the family, not just the individual themselves, where a lot of the focus is on, but siblings who might not even come up on the equation to check in on, to show love, to show support, to concern, to ask how they're doing. What could a community, and the community could be defined and broken down in so many ways, but however you want to go, what could, what could we as a community be doing better? Um, I think to tackle the issue on a communal level is maybe a job for you, but not a job for everyone in the crowd. Um, but I really think the, the, the best, most effective thing is just anyone you see um, if you look close enough, you'll probably see something in their eyes and something that's going on in their life. And it's really uncomfortable to like walk over to someone and say, are you okay? And it's really uncomfortable to, to look at someone while they're in pain and know they're in pain or even ask the question and not know that they're in pain. Um, but the times that it's been done to me and the times I've done it to other people have been tremendously successful. Um, you know, we all have that, that neighbor, that friend, that family member who we know something might be going on or we have a hunch. Um, and I think just, just to like, again, like part of destigmatizing is, is just on like a really basic individual level. It's not, you know, going over to someone saying, are you struggling with addiction? But just ask them how the day is going, talk to people. Um, 
you know, make people feel comfortable and then open and, and enough of that. I think if everyone in the room here now, you know, everyone that's listening does that to some extent that already opens the floodgates. It's amazing. A lot of thoughts on what could the community do differently? How could we improve? Yeah, I feel like he covered it. Um, <laughs> um, this is my wise younger brother. Um, but yeah, I think um, opening up and in addition to asking people how they are and being there, um, I think having the conversations around these things and not just addiction, but all sorts of issues that like the Jewish community, not just the Jewish community, but every community, you know, these are these are issues that span across communities. And I think the more you have these conversations, the more it does make people feel like it's OK to talk about what they're struggling with. Um, and when people feel like it's okay to talk about what they're struggling with, they can reach out for help and support. And then, you know, we can ask them what they need for help and support because it will be different for each person and each family. But we can't even ask them what they need for help and support if people can't even talk about what they need help and support for. Mm -hmm. So, once read a study that um, even sharing at our own table with our own family, the family narrative, the oscillating family narrative, being vulnerable. A lot of children look at parents already with a certain stage of accomplishment in life and think it all came easy or comes easy to them even a willingness to just be vulnerable with one another, that we don't always feel great, we're not always doing okay, not everything is a success, sometimes we're overwhelmed, and maybe just the feeling of vulnerability validates other people's feelings of, of vulnerability. What can we do in it better as a community? Can I chime um, in with one more thing? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Interrupt your mother. <laughs> I think at some point, Ima, you, you, we had a real down-to-earth conversation, and you told me that for the longest time, you were trying really hard just not to cry in front of me. Um, and to just, can make me cry. <laughs> and just to be the, the, the super mom that you were. Um, and I think the first time I saw you cry and the subsequent times after that, those, those opened doors for me, um, to, you know, if I see my parents are all put together and I feel really not put together, then I feel like a failure. But if I could see that it's okay to not be put together all the time. So that, you know, that's, that's great. I love, I love that. Um, yeah, no, I did do that. I did think that it was better to protect my children, to never show them what I was feeling when I felt vulnerable. There were many times I described myself as hanging on by my fingernails. Um, one, thank you for saying that. Um, and I did at some point say, this is ridiculous. We're human. And, you know, I think I thought my kids would feel like they couldn't count on us if we fell apart. Um, it's interesting to see that it had the opposite effect. Um, and we underestimate how much our kids know and see. My, my daughters, my younger daughters have told me they heard and saw things I thought that they didn't hear and see. Um, and it came out much, many years later how scared they were, how frightened they were. And they couldn't talk about it because they didn't want to burden us any further than we were already being, you know, already dealing with things. Um, and it really bothered me that, you know, all that time I thought I had protected them and really they were just suffering alone. Um, and with you. Um, but one thing I do want to say is, you know, I, I have many speaking engagements now. When I started out four years ago, I was asked to speak to the YU Rebbitzins conference. Um, and the one thing they asked is, you know, what can we do as Rebbitzins and communities? And I said, parody. I said, if you have a family that, God forbid, something is cancer or something else is going on in the family and you're going to cook and do carpool and what do you need and what do you need and what do you need? Why is it not the same for mental health issues? Why are you not going? Just because they don't want to talk about it. Not everybody wants to talk about their cancer treatment. Not everybody wants to confide in somebody about something else that's going on. Just because it's mental health does not mean it's not touchable. Um, and I really was very adamant on that point. Um, and the other thing that was very personal for me is I had one friend who, at the worst of this, I did not want to talk to anybody. I did not want to socialize with anybody. I, I couldn't even 
pick up the phone or answer a text message. And this one friend kept on just texting me once in a while and saying, are you okay? Don't answer. You don't have to answer. I'm just telling you, I'm thinking about you. And I didn't answer her and I didn't reach out. It was probably about a good year and a half. Thank God we're still friends. Um, <laughs> but the fact that she kept on doing that and in response, I always felt uncomfortable checking on people and asking how they're doing. This goes along with what you said. I felt like it was none of my business. I'm, I shouldn't be prying. And if they don't answer me, I felt rejected. And it, it, was, it wasn't about me. And there was one woman in my community who I, her husband had pancreatic cancer. He unfortunately passed away. Um, and I didn't even know her that well. And I just kept on sending her messages. I'm just thinking about you. You don't have to answer. And she never did. And when I went to pay a shiva call, she was sitting next to her mother. And, and I went to say hello and give, whatever, you didn't say hello. But I went to <laughs> give my condolences. And she turned to her mother and she says, mommy, mommy, this is the woman who kept on emailing me and texting me all last year while so-and-so was suffering. This is the one I was telling you about. And so it made a difference. And I didn't know it made a difference. And it's not about me and finding out that it made a difference. But I think that reaching out, you can do that in a non-intrusive, I'm just thinking about you. I just care about you way. And I, I learned my lesson from being on the receiving end. Um, and I try to do that now in my life. The only other thing I'd add is people talk about addiction as a disease of isolation, right? The, the, the person who's suffering, it feels very often ashamed. Um, and a lot of that is because of the stigma. Uh, and so there's been a lot of research done around socialization and how important socialization is and how the, the socialization can be such a counterweight to addiction that if we can figure out a way to embrace people in our community to, to understand that, you know, while again to what leanne said parity treat, treat it as an Ill, the illness that it is um we're going to improve outcomes we're going to allow those people to have socialization within our community within the framework of our community they won't have to sit and and numb themselves as you said rabbi goldberg by you know shooting up heroin in, in in their bedroom they'll have socialization and that will serve that same purpose and so i think that's something we really can can work on we started a um, new podcast called out of the shadows on mental health we did an episode on anxiety a very courageous woman lives in, uh, in Long Island, the five towns, five children, runs a gemach from her home. Again, I share that only because, you know, these aren't outliers. These are what we call normal normative cases and spoke about her two psychiatric hospitalizations and exactly that, right? That if she were hospitalized for some physical illness, community would have come together to help her husband drive carpool, bring meals, but because it was mental health, kind of everyone retreated a little bit. Nobody knew what to do. And she also spoke about the socialization and the connections, which she described as literally saving her life that she had suicidal thoughts, and if not for the connections in the community, she doesn't know that she'd be here. And it's, it's, if you haven't listened, it's really worth it. Like tonight, there is uh, there is so much to learn. So let's let's fast forward to today. Um, where, where are we at? Recovery, again, from what I understand, addiction is not, the illness is not something that's ever cured or solved. It's managed. It's ongoing. We'll come back to you, Alana, but we'll start with your parents. Do you, do you still live with fear, concern? Are you worried that as, as well as things are going, and we have to say that we're in a shul, as well as things are going, do you have fear or worry that it may not stay that way, that things could ever turn around? Well, I'll ask, is there any parent in the room who doesn't worry about their child? <laughs> There's always worry. Um, look, um, I don't think you ever stop worrying. Uh, it's gotten to the point where when Ilana's name comes up on my phone, I don't shudder anymore because um, I'm not afraid that it's going to be a call while she's in major crisis because for a while that was my reaction. And, and the recovery of loved ones, and this is something we learned, and we see all, all, you know, pervasively, often lags the recovery of, of the addict themselves. And so, um, you know, we got a little PTSD from, from what Ilana went through, what our family went through when she was in the throes of her addiction. 
Um, I, I, so again, we, we continue to work at our recovery. I don't think we'll ever stop worrying. Um, I think anytime something challenging happens in Ilana's life, the first place our minds go is, uh-oh, is her sobriety in jeopardy? Now, it's a three-second thought now as opposed to a two-day thought. Um, and, and we see very quickly that she's managing um, you know, the challenges in her life in a much healthier and more productive way. And, and we'll, we'll relax. But I think you always work. Me? Yeah. <laughs> um, ditto. Um, I think where we are to now today is something that I hope, you know, expresses itself without me expressing it, but we are closer as a family um, than we ever have been. We have a relationship with Ilana, which we never had before. Um, we are connected to her in so many ways, um, you know, because of the journey that we went on together. And, you know, we're extremely, extremely proud of the strength and courage it took for her, first of all, to come forward six years ago um, and to say something. And that took a lot of, of guts um, to say something to us. But I think that, you know, we're proud of all of our children and how they've used this experience to connect with each other and repair relationships that were that were broken um and come together and also to support us to support what we're doing it's not easy to tell our story i tell people you know somebody says to me oh i you know maybe i want to tell my story and i say well yeah it has to be okay with everybody in your family and not many people want to take out ads in newspapers like we do but um you know it's not for everybody but i think that it has allowed us to connect in a way that i'm not sure we would have connected otherwise i think the adversity really did make us stronger as a family. Gavriel, um, would you share on that PTSD as a sibling? Do you think that that experience, that period of life really also shaped you, the siblings, in that same way in a recovery process? How much does it inform who you are as a, as a husband building a family and, and your future? Um, so I don't get the same PTSD when she texts me. I actually get really excited when she texts me because for a long time we didn't talk to each other. Um, and now we're able to. Um, talk about that. Why, why was that? Um, I mean, just logistically, uh, being in rehab is not so conducive for uh, having a relationship, I guess. Um, there were times when I, I assume, uh, you know, that Ilana didn't want to talk to me. Um, there were times when I didn't want to talk to her and I was mad at her um, and it took a while to differentiate between her and the addiction and to realize I was really mad at the addiction. Um, but there were definitely times when, when we, went, we went a really long time without talking to each other. Um, and I think Ilana was the one who had the courage to initially reach out and was part of making amends. And, um, and now, you know, there's no hard feelings at all and, and we're really... We missed a lot of formative years of, of being siblings, but we're closer than I, I ever could have imagined. So it's amazing. Alana, let's end tonight appropriately with you. Um, tell us where you're at today. And I want to make this point and in the form of a question, but also communicate it as a really strong point. You've had the courage to put yourself out there and to allow your family to work on this, but this doesn't define you. This is not who you are. It's not the sum total of your life. It's a piece of it. It's a part of it. Um, as much as we're all complex and made up of a lot of different parts. So tell us a little bit more about the rest of you. Tell us about who you are aside from the addiction and the illness that you're managing so brilliantly today. Where are you in recovery? What's that like? But also a bigger picture of, of who you are and where you're going. 
Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like my recovery is pretty solid at this point. I still remain vigilant of myself. And like, when I get into bad mental states, like thinking what my impulse reaction is to like reacting to those. Um, and I still do think I have a very addictive personality. Like I work a lot. Um, I, my first race I ever ran was a half marathon. Like I just, I just go for it. Like I'm just, but you know, I fill those holes that I had, like I still, and I still have all those insecurities and those fears and those personality um, defects or faults. And I, I just fill them and fill up my life with other things today. Um, and I'm conscious about making the effort to fill it up with those things. Um, I'm running another half marathon this weekend. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for that. I actually trained for this one though. So hopefully we'll go better than the last one. Um, you know, I, I, I took up running as a way to cope with stress. I also, I'm in grad school now, which adds stress, but also alleviates, um, like that sense of emptiness. Like I'm working towards goals right now in my life. I'm in the midst of applying to PhD programs, um, to continue doing research about addiction on a communal level, um, and looking at ways that we can intervene, like from a public health standpoint. Um, what else do I do? I <laughs> uh, sometimes um, I, I play piano, like I play music, like my life is very full of things. I have friendships, too. Um, they talk about like when you get into AI, they, they have this cheesy line where they, they talk about like, oh, if you uh, engage with the recovery, you'll have a life beyond your wildest imagination. Um, and they always said that and I thought it was like the cheesiest thing. And when I got to a year in recovery, I already thought I was at that point of my my wildest imagination. I'm like, I have a car, like I have a roof over my head. Like, this is great. This is my wild. I was working as a fry cook at the time. I'm like, this is fantastic. Like, this is the life like beyond my wildest. And then it only started getting better and better as time went on. Um, and it's crazy even looking back to my early recovery versus now. Um, like I never once, first of all, I didn't think I was going to finish college. I dropped out of college. Um, and I was dropped out at the time when I got into sobriety. I didn't think I was going to go back to school, let alone get into an Ivy League grad program and be doing the research I'm doing today. Um, I didn't think I would ever have like this, the relationship I have with my siblings that I have today, um, the friendships I have, which um, are deeper than any friendships I've ever had in my life, um, the relationship with my parents, and just the fact that we can sit here on a panel and not only talk about these serious things, but but joke about these serious things. And laugh like it's it's a life that's filled with like happiness and laughter and just this is like and hopefully we'll just continue getting better but like this is like beyond my wildest imagination now so i don't know what else is in store for me but i'm excited to find out so what a perfect place to leave it join me in thanking the family amazing <laughs> really an enormous uh, enormous thank you to the foreman family and i want to reiterate there are some resources in the back um, everyone should take one so that nobody stands out as having taken one. <laughs> everyone take resources on your way out. So those who need them will also be among those who take them. Thank you again for tonight. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. And you can find online much more. And, and we're here. If anyone would like to speak, we can help refer and guide and support. Our community is uh, is very open and supportive. Thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you so much.